Colossians chapter 3, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Hear these words. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So let me just do a little bit of a reminder. It's been a while, right, since we've been in Colossians. Um, Jesus is the core. He's the center of the universe. He is the heart of God's redemptive plan. He is the pull of gravity for the Christian life. He is the center of the center. You don't make Jesus the center. He is the center of everything. Your life is to revolve around Jesus Christ, who is the center of everything. That is the message of the book of Colossians. And our aim of this study has been to unpack this truth and bring it wholeheartedly more fully into each and every life. So after six weeks of walking through the book of Ruth, after which honestly I'm kind of going through some withdrawals after last week, um, after my friend Joe Paglia preaching uh, after Easter, we were concluding if you remember, which you probably don't, we're concluding a six-week mini-series within the book of Colossians called Jesus-Centered Thinking. So we're wrapping up that one. After taking an extended break, we're wrapping up with one sermon on Jesus-Centered Thinking. And in this section, section uh, chapter 2, verse 8 through 3, verse 4, we've learned the importance of keeping Jesus Christ at the, at the very core of our understanding of what true, real Christian spirituality is really about. And as a reminder to kind of bring you back up to speed, here's what we learned. In chapter 2, 8 through 10, we were warned about that ever so subtle spiritual drift, placing our hope and trust in things that used to lead us to Christ. But now they're causing spiritual drift. We learned in chapter 2, 11 through 12, that we learned about the powerful position of being circumcised and baptized in Jesus Christ. We learned about that in Chapter 2, 13, 14, and 15, we celebrated the fact that Jesus Christ moves people from death to life. In verses 16 and 17 and 18, we were introduced to the subject of legalism and our tendency to be sidelined by other people. And then we discovered the dangerous root of legalism which is ultimately self-worship. 
Next week, we're going to be moving in, into our final series of Jesus-centered ministry. And uh, that, that final nine messages will deal with the, a number of different applications of, of everything that we've heard so far. So we're going to take it, everything that we've learned about our position, our reality, those truths, and we're going to bring it home to life. And uh, we're going to hear about everything that we need to put off. It says that we need to put off immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, anger, and wrath. Anybody have to put that off? Right. You know, me too. And, and what we need to put on, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness. We need to put on patience. I know I need to put those things on. Further, we're going to see how it all relates to real-life relationships. Husbands, wives, children, masters, slaves. In other words, Paul is going to show us the sleeping, sweeping importance, the implications of a Jesus-centered thinking. He's going to show us how to live this out, this Jesus-centered thinking in real life, in technicolor. But before we jump into this next section for next week, there is one more piece that we need to fit into this series. It is the matter of actually cultivating Christ-centered thinking. Cultivating it. With the right foundation and having the right focus. Cultivating it. And I know most of you do not come from an agrarian background, right? How many of you have had really, not like a garden, but like a real agrarian agricultural background? How many of you have it? Okay, thank you. Three of us, four of us. You're really, that's true. Two of them are related to me. But, but this idea of cultivating takes work. It, it's not just a one-shot deal. It is something that goes on. You are constantly tilling the ground, checking the ground. Does it have the right nourishment? Does it have, how deep do we plow? How, how constantly do we take care of weeds? How do, we, how do we do this so that we are reaping a harvest? This constant cultivating is the work of the Christian life. Some of us come at it very casually, right? We come at it, I'm a Christian, it's just going to happen. And the reality is, the Christian life is one that requires constant cultivation. Constant work. Constant attention. Or else, very quickly, weeds take over and choke out fruit. So, Paul is going to be calling us to this real holistic pursuit of Jesus-centered living that affects our attitude, our ambitions, our mind, our heart, our will, and our very, the very outlook of our life. A holistic pursuit. Jesus becomes, will become the center of gravity around which everything in our life is to revolve. It creates a, what we would call a Christian worldview. How we look at everything. So if there's one thing that I really, really want you to get from this, this series, it's going to be this statement. Life revolves around Jesus, not around you. Life 
revolves around Jesus, not around you, not around me, not around my wife, not around the elders, not around the deacons. A Jesus-centered life revolves actually around Jesus and not around me. So our text this morning calls us to, to live for Jesus and not for ourselves. So how do we actually do that? How do we put feet to this uh, Jesus-centered thinking? For the sake of helping you remember this, I'm going to give you three T's to remember it. Three T's. Truth, target, trust. Truth, target, trust. So let's start off with the first one. Truth. Celebrating the spiritual, real spiritual foundations of life. Biblical Christianity teaches us that life is based upon truth. Undergirding all of life is a deposit of absolute truth. Yes, in our world, there, people try to say there's no absolute truth. Christianity says, yes, there is. There is absolute truth, and it has vast sweeping effects on the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that we check ourselves. For example, the Bible tells us that every person is a sinner and has fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that there is one mediator between God and man, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that as many as receive him, as receive Jesus, to them, God has given the right to be children of God. So Christianity is based in belief that is life-transforming and is found in Scripture. Everybody Everybody in this room, everybody that you know, everybody believes something. Everyone has a worldview. Everybody is a theologian. Everybody. The question is whether or not you are a biblical theologian or not. Underneath the way that everyone lives is, is a set of beliefs. Beliefs govern the way that you Live the way that you move in this world. What you truly believe to be true, those truths create a grid through which you live. If I carefully watch your life and the decisions that you make, whether private or public, I can quickly tell you what you believe about God, about truth. So how does this relate to, to Colossians? The reality is it's very central to it. Once again, we find that Paul talks about our, uh, the reality of our position in Christ, and then he points out how to live then in light of that truth. If you are in Christ, you are totally encapsulated with Christ. It says, now, according to that truth, that positional reality... This is how you must then live. For example, look at 3 verse 1, right? If you have been raised with Christ, it's a, and it's a, an assumption. If you've been raised with Christ, really, you have been. Seek the things that are above. Seek them. 
Do you see that? We, we have truth or a positional reality that leads to a practical application here. Position leads to a priority which leads to a practice in life. I need to know who I am. I need to know what's important. And then from that, I need to know what do I do? My the positional truth, the positional reality of who I am in Christ Jesus, what he has accomplished for me, informs the way that I live my life. So what is undergirding the truth in verses 1 through 4? There, there are four truths, two of which we have heard before. First, it's a familiar theme. The first thing is you were raised with Christ. You, we first heard it in chapter 2, verse 12. You were also raised with him through faith. And, and the meaning is that those who receive Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior share in the victory that he has over the grave. There is new power. There is resurrection power to walk in a newness of life. If you have been raised, which you have been, there is a newness of life. The result is that just as Jesus is alive with God, reigning with him in all eternity, glorified again, we who are in him are alive as well. We are living carelessly because of our position with Christ. Which leads us to the second truth that we see in verse 3. It's a familiar one as well. For you have died. For you have died. Often this positional truth is directly connected in the text to being raised with Christ. You've died, and you've been raised. To have died with Christ means that there is a permanent and a powerful severing. Like death, right? It's permanent. Whether we like to say it or not, death is powerful. And you have died with Christ. It is permanent, it is powerful, and it is the severing of the believer from the old way of life, the old way of doing things, the old way of living, everything that goes along with your old way. You are dead, 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 dead to that. There are no do-overs, there are no mulligans. When it comes to death, death severs things. So putting these two together, we see this beautiful and rich spiritual position that believers in Jesus Christ have been given. You see, the old way of life has been severed. If you are in Christ, that is severed. That is dead. It is gone. We don't go back to it. It is the old life. And a new approach to life has come, which is full of power, resurrection power. All of it is real. It is foundational only because of Jesus. I just want you to start thinking about what are the realities for me if this is true, which we believe it is, what does this mean for me? My old life is gone. It is dead. It is severed. It has no power over me anymore. 
but I am living now, raised with Christ in His resurrection power. Some of you should be going, woohoo! Amen! That is dead. I'm alive and I'm living within. I'm found in Christ with His resurrection power. Praise be to God. Pornography, you have no hold over me. Anger, you're dead. Bitterness, gone. It is gone in the name of Jesus. I am standing in new resurrection power created in Christ Jesus. What an amazing bit of good news. So we've kind of lived in these two realities. We've talked about these already. So here I want to go on to this third reality, which is kind of for me, this third and fourth are kind of exciting stuff. So I'll try to bring it down. Um, The third truth is one that just kind of captures something new um, and important, but it's it's kind of a new thing that we're going to be talking about here in Colossians. On the heels of talking about this severing of the old life, Paul says, your life, in verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? Right? In many secular cultures in, in Paul's day, they believed that a person's life was directly connected to some external object or a kind of a life token thing. The belief was that as long as this other life was preserved, then one's earthly life is also preserved. Does that make sense? That's what they believed. As long as this thing out here was being preserved and cared for, my earthly life right here is also preserved. So Paul may have been kind of playing off of this notion and using it to, to identify the other world object to which our life is connected in none other than Jesus Christ himself. Paul's taking a cultural idea and say, listen, you, kinda, you got an idea going out here? Let me kind of zero it in and give some clarity here. Jesus. And so this word hidden means to, to kind of keep secret. And, and it is, here's my geekiness, it is in the past perfect tense, or in the perfect tense, indicating that an event was completed in the past with direct effects today. So it wasn't just a historical event having no implications for me. It was completed in the past and is now It still has direct implications and effects on me today. It seems that the context of secrecy or hiddenness here implies safety. Not like you can't see it, but it is talking about safety. In other words, even though you cannot see it, nor can other people see it, your life is kept secure by the fully divine Christ himself. Your life is hidden in Christ, in God, and you are kept safe and secure. So the phrase with Christ is enormously significant. It means that we not only share in his death, and we not only share in his resurrection, we also share in his present position in the presence of the triune God right now. Right? So right now, if you are in Christ, 
You, your present reality is you are sharing with Christ some beautiful, powerful things. Therefore, all the power of Christ and all the, the power of the triune Godhead are leveraged to keep you in Christ. It's, it's all leveraging to you to stay hidden in Christ, in God. You are there and you are stuck. Is it any wonder why Paul would say, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Nothing. Why? We have a present reality of being in Christ, in God, right now, ruling and reigning. There's nothing going to separate us. That is beautiful stuff. Powerful stuff. Which brings us to our fourth point. The final positional reality relates to this Greek word called eschaton. Circle it, underline it, write it down, sound it out. Or, if you were here last week, the word consummation. The consummation. Or as often called, it's the second coming, the final coming of Jesus Christ. This moment in the, in, in the history of the church will be the final disclosure of the previously hidden relationship that we have with Christ. Our hidden relationship will suddenly become undeniably evident because we will be with him. We will be with him in glory. Period. We will be with Christ in glory. This is also the moment where the work of our salvation will finally be completed. You and I who are in Christ will be made perfect. We will be sinless and we will experience eternal life. We will be like Christ that day. Notice this position and practice thing that is modeled in 1 John chapter 3. Listen to this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. See the future implications? But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. <laughs> because why? We shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So Paul is pointing toward this, this certain day in our future where the wrestling with sin will be over. And I can't wait for that day. The wrestling will be over. He reminded us that there is a coming day where we will be fully like Christ, fully sanctified, fully holy. So this foundational piece relates to the security of our future. Life may be confusing. Life may be uncertain. Life may be hard, but the outcome is fixed. It's set. It's set. You will appear with him in glory. Now just think about what we've talked about regarding these four foundational truths, these four foundational matters. 
Notice when you put these four things together that there are positional statements rooted in the past. You have died and you have been raised. That's happened in the past and they are set and they are certain and it has direct implications for you today. This has happened. You have died with Christ and you've been raised with Christ. Praise God. You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Praise be to God. But it's not there. Your present reality is you are hidden in Christ today. You are hidden in Christ today. Your positional reality is, I'm in Christ. No matter what is happening, I am safe and secure. The winds and waves of this hurricane of this world right now is blowing and tossing me, but I am safe. I am secure. There is nothing that is going to separate me today from the love of God in Jesus Christ. But there's also the future. You will appear with him in glory. And friends, this is, this is a sermon for a funeral. When an old saint passes away, you can say, you know what? Praise God. They are now experiencing a part of this future reality. And they've been longing for it. Huh. Praise be to God. I'm longing for it. This is all true for us. So think about this. God has you covered. He has you covered. And the reason he did all of that, and the reason that Paul talks about this, is because it is directly connected to practical, everyday living. Remember, position, then, then priority, and then ultimately practice. This is the beginning of cultivating Christ-centeredness. Which leads me to our, our next big area. Trust, orienting my life in Christ. It requires actually action. It, these, these are truths and realities, but there is something that we, we just don't say, well, passively, I'm hoping that it happens to me. Paul is making a bridge in this section from doctrinal truth to practical living. He calls believers based upon their position to orient their lives to Christ. In other words, Jesus actually becomes our target. He becomes our target. He's the center of the universe. He holds everything together, and our lives are to orbit around him. According to these verses, two things are involved. Verses 1 and 2, two things are involved. Seek things that are above. This is a command that we are to practice continually. The meaning of this word seek is to bend the will to, toward or to orient your will toward something. It is the same word that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Seek first the kingdom of God. Bend your will. Orient your life towards the kingdom of God. It can be used to mean strive after, desire, or endeavor. It means whatever you want in there. Seek after. Sometimes we use the word look in the same way, right? In our context. For instance, when your kids are bugging you and they are on the edge of death with you. I know none of you have experienced it. I have. 
And you look at them and say, are you looking to get into trouble? Are you looking for that? Are you seeking, endeavoring to get into trouble? Because I'm telling you, you are. And you better reorient your life or death will come knocking on your door. Right? But notice what the orientation is here. Paul gives us a further explanation of what it means by above. He describes, he describes as where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So, so the above things are directly related to this personal presence of the exalted and uh, honored Christ. Paul uses the imagery at the right hand of God and it clearly communicates that he has in mind Jesus' supreme position of authority. He is seated at the right hand of God. Fix your mind on that. Endeavor towards that. This idea comes from Psalm 110, particularly in uh, verses 1 and 4, where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what does that mean? It's like, well, Paul, I'm not seeing the connection. In short, it means that there is a real place with a real Savior who is really powerful and reigns over absolutely everything. That's what it means. And those who know him, know him, not just like casual knowledge, intimately know him, have a will that is bent in that direction. In other words, they see everything through the lens of the lordship of Jesus Christ. They, they love the lordship of Jesus Christ. They, they want to expand the lordship of Jesus Christ in their personal lives, their, their relational lives across the world. They want to see Jesus Christ as Lord. They, they see everything, their careers, their cars, their kids, their, their uh, employment, their entertainment, their income, their marriage, their friendships, their priorities, their everything through the lens of Christ, the Lordship of Christ. One of the successful strategies that I use when my heart is filled with wrong desires or, or when I'm trying to get to the heart of a sin issue in my life is asking myself this question, Paul, what do you want? What do you want? It points me back to the important matter of which I am seeking. The powerful and transforming target that the Apostle Paul points us to is to seek Christ and his reign, his dominion, his rule over everything. Paul, what do you want? Are you looking for selfish needs to be fulfilled? Why are you reacting this way? What do you want? I want Christ to rule and reign in all these things. Listen, at the root of all anger, of all impatience, of all greed, of all lust, of all bitterness, and of, of really all sin is a bent of your will that doesn't fit into who Christ is. That's really at the heart of it all. 
We've got to bend our wills, set our desires upon, and relentlessly seek, relentlessly seek through the power of Christ found in the resurrection. Seek the power of Christ and orientation that seeks to magnify, magnify the lordship of Christ in all things. But he doesn't stop there. Setting your minds on things that are above. We're called not only to bend our will or desire, but to set, set our minds on things that are above. This is the second command that Paul gives to intentionally focus your mind and your heart on, on the things of Christ. The first command was dealt more with your heart or desire, the bent of your will. This command focuses more on your attention and your, your affections. The word is translated mind, and it has broad, kind of broad range of meanings, which includes thinking, judging, meditating, or being intent on. In other words, the Bible is, the parts of the Bible translate as think. Not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Or harmony. Live in harmony with one another or having the same mind complete my joy by having being of the same mind or mind or mentality have this mind in you which is also in Christ Jesus setting your mind includes your thought process what you think about but it also includes what you love and what you are passionate about if you, how many of you were, have grown up with the King James Version? Some of you have? Okay. In, in the King James Version, it translates translate this idea with the word affections. In, in our culture today, when we think about affections, we have different kinds of thoughts. And it probably wouldn't be the best translation for today because we don't have 17th century language in our heads but when they used it in the King James Version, it meant a fully orbed desire and orientation that springs from your thought. In other words, affections include the mind, the heart, the feelings. So it means to set the focus of your life, the trajectory of your heart, and the wellsprings of your emotions on Christ. Set it on Christ. And notice, Paul here assumes that your mind has already been set in that direction. I'm thinking about Christ. I'm thinking about His Lordship. I desire that. Now, you know, you just don't naturally go there, right? It just doesn't. I'm thinking about it. I'm going there. It requires action. So you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have to point your mind, your hearts, your affections in that direction. Think of it like hoisting or, or trimming up a, a sailboat sail. It requires you to, to, to set sail in such a way that it catches the wind constantly. It's catching the wind so that you can move in that direction. That's what it means to, to set your affections on Christ. So from a spiritual standpoint, this involves the bending or the seeking of your will and the pointing of your mind and your heart 
by setting it on Christ. You have got to have the right target. So I'm going to end with the last one. It's going to be quick. But I want you to think about this. I want to give you some practical ways to do this. And I'm going to kind of fly through it because it's, it's really elementary stuff. How do we do this? Actually be passionate about your position in Christ. Some of you need to tell yourself, I'm set, I've died, and I've been raised with Christ. My position is secure in Christ, and someday I'm going to see my reality here. Praise be to God, I can move in life now. Be passionate about that. That is who I am. It's true. It's a reality. Be passionate about that. Celebrate that God has actually changed the orientation of your will. Thanks be to God, because I couldn't do it on my own. I was dead. Dead in my transgressions. Dead. Spiritually dead. Impossible to change it. But God changed it for me. Thanks be to God. Realize that your affection and desires will just naturally spiral downward without forward movement. Friends, this is a warning for some of you that if you do not move directly towards Christ, intentionally towards Christ, with some of the things I'm going to talk about next, you are going to naturally spiral downwards spiritually. And you're going to hit a crash, a bottom that you do not want to hit. But God may permit it to bring you back to Him. But it requires forward movement or else you just naturally crash. Look, at, look for things that cause unnecessary spiritual distraction. Some of them you may want to give up temporarily or permanently. Are there things in your life that you need to give up because they cause a downward mobility? Here's another one. Sing often. Sing often. Sing songs that remind you of the truths of Scripture. Wasn't this, uh, I, I think I heard from my wife about uh, Abby Hutto from the Women's Conference. What's her name? Is Abby not here? Of course, she would give me the right name. Uh, but they talked about having kind of a, a chest of things. When your heart is telling you lies, You've got some songs that you go to that tell you the truth about who you are in Christ. Get over the you too. When, when you got like a rage going on and some of you pull out like your angry songs or your, your workout songs, sing some songs that actually tell the truth about you. Sing them loud. Sing them proud. T sing songs that remind you about who you are in Christ Jesus. Another thing, pray. Pray as a part of your, your, your life. Make it spontaneous. Make it the first and the last part of your day. Pray normally, spontaneously. Be sure that you're spending time in the Word, friends. Saturate your environment with Scripture. Memorize it. Stick it in your mind. Read books, especially old books. Read books that have stood the test 
of time. If you're looking for a list of books and authors not to read, come see me afterwards. I've got an extensive list today. And lastly, find a godly man or woman and ask them to spend time in your life. Help them, ask them to, I I need you to help uncover some stuff. I, I need you to hold a mirror up and help me to see myself for who I am. I need you. So none of these on their own will work without the empowering work of the Spirit and trusting in Christ. We must come with humble hearts and say to Jesus, listen, Jesus, help me seek the right things and set my mind on the right things. I, I, I need truth. I need a target, and I need to trust in you. There's, there's truth undergirding all of us, friends, and we have a target that we have to strive for forward towards and we can take one step at a time the process of becoming like christ is a lifelong intentional process of moving towards christ amen let's pray father god uh, i thank you for your word I thank you that there are some truths about us that are not able to be taken away. They are not even to be thought about lightly. These are heavy, intentional, reality things about us that you have given us in Christ Jesus. I thank you, God, that we have, through your cross, that we are dead with Christ, but we have been raised with Christ, and that there is a present reality that we are hidden with Christ, encapsulated with Christ, and Lord, that we have a future hope to long for. Father, as we come to this table, I just ask, Lord, I ask that you give us hearts that truly understand what is going on in our lives. We ask, Lord, that as we come to this table that we will be fed, that we will be fed now and for eternity by Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.